This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Abishai Artsy. Every year, the Nobel Peace Prizes are handed out. And every year, the laureate or laureates receive a lot of attention. The Felix Houphouet Boigny Peace Prize has been awarded to the... The 2021 U.S. Peace Prize recipient. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has won the Confucius Peace Prize. It's a great privilege to receive this prestigious Seoul Peace Prize. Two journalists won this year's Nobel Peace Prize. The United Nations World Food Program is the winner of this year's Nobel Peace Prize. She's now making history. Malala Yousafzai learning she is now the youngest winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, just 17. It's a prize for Ethiopia and a prize for Africa. The words of Abiy Ahmed after winning this year's Nobel Peace Prize, the Ethiopian Prime Minister. The Nobel Peace Prizes were established by Alfred Nobel, the Swedish inventor and philanthropist, and have been handed out since 1901. Committee members in Norway meet privately to consider nominees and put forward their own names. They look for world leaders who advance the cause of peace. But in recent years, the process has come under scrutiny. Some critics say the prize has lost its way by honoring leaders who later fuel wars and deny massacres instead of cultivating peace around the world. Our correspondent today is Avishai Artsy. And Avishai, when we asked you what peace topic you might like to report on, you chose looking at peace prizes, including these discussions about how the Nobel Prize has been thought of in recent years. Why did you want to look at peace prizes in the first place? Yeah, the Nobel Peace Prize has always seemed like an odd contradiction to me. I've always associated prizes with competitions, you know, like in sports or entertainment or in being really good at something like writing books or making scientific discoveries. But, you know, peacemaking is hardly a competitive field and it's rarely achieved by one person or even one group. And also one person's hero is another person's political opponent. So, you know, some say it's more often a political act to give out a prize like this. And peace is transitory, you know, and that's become an issue for the Nobel Committee. And uh, finally, there's been a conversation for years about reforming the process for selecting the Nobel Peace Prize laureates. And it seems like that conversation has gained traction following a few problematic laureates, let's just say, in recent years, which we're going to get into in a minute. Right. Well, our intro segment included mentions of other peace prizes that I'm guessing most people don't know much about. I didn't know about several of them, but what are two or three that are fairly well established that people might want to keep an ear out for besides the Nobel Prize? One interesting one is called the Right Livelihood Award. It's a Swedish prize that was created in 1980 by a Swedish-German philanthropist, Jakob von Uxkul. He had proposed two new Nobel Prizes for environmental work and for promotion of knowledge. Uh, When the Nobel Foundation shot down that idea, he decided to create his own award, at first selling his stamp collection to pay for the prize money. It's often called the Alternative Nobel, and it's given to efforts that the founder thinks are being ignored by the Nobel. Recent recipients include uh, Greta Thunberg, the climate activist, uh, the American lawyer and activist Brian Stevenson, and the Iranian lawyer Nasran Sotudeh. There are also awards that are given out by regimes that could be considered hostile. 
You know, when a journalist and opponent of the Nazi party won the Nobel in 1935, Adolf Hitler established the German National Prize for Art and Science, which was given out every year to three German citizens, and that award lasted until the start of World War II in 1939. And in 2010, the Confucius Peace Prize was established in China, part of the country's reaction to the Nobel Peace Prize laureate that year, the late dissident and author Liu Xiaobo. So Amishai, give us a quick preview of our two guests today and why you chose them to speak to. So later in the show, we'll hear from Dr. Comfort Iro. She is the president and CEO of International Crisis Group and its former Africa program director. She spent her career working on conflict prevention, management, and resolution. And I'm going to ask her about that, along with her thoughts on the Nobel Peace Prize. But first, we're going to hear from Dr. Shetil Trunvol. He's a professor of peace and conflict studies at Oslo New University College in Norway. He heads the consulting firm Oslo Analytica. His research has focused on the East African countries of Eritrea and Ethiopia, and he's been a vocal critic of how the Nobel Peace Prize is handed out. And I asked him to talk about how the reputation of the Nobel Peace Prize has come under question in the last few years. Well, the perception of the prize has changed or shifted somehow, I would say. It is still considered generally as the most uh, prestigious uh, prize within its field, but uh, recent controversial laureates have um, possibly undermined some of the prestige and honor of the prize, in the sense that the prize has become more contested. Right. And one of those recipients is Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister of Ethiopia. He was awarded the prize in 2019 for helping to end his country's long-running war with Eritrea. And the prize committee cited his, quote, efforts to achieve peace and international cooperation, and in particular for his decisive initiative to resolve the border conflict with neighboring Eritrea. Why was the prize committee hopeful for his reforms when they decided to award him the prize? The committee based their decision on what Abiy did in terms of political reforms from the day he took power in April 2018 until the end of December that same year. So it was a rather narrow window of uh, time they considered his actions against. And during that time period, Abiy Ahmed instigated radical reforms in Ethiopia. He um, started a political diplomatic dialogue with the neighboring country Eritrea and its president to settle the long simmering border conflict. And he also showed engagements in other regional affairs like uh, political transitions in both Somalia and Sudan. So those are the three issues the committee used as legitimate reasons to grant him the award. First and foremost, the peace dialogue with Eritrea. Secondly, the domestic political reforms in Ethiopia. And thirdly, his regional role as a political broker, so to say. And so what was then the reality of what was happening in Ethiopia and what was Abe doing during this time? I think the controversy or the criticism raised against the Nobel Committee is the fact that already from the fall of 2018, we saw that some of the reforms were actually stopping up and even backsliding. And certainly from early 2019, we saw that the peace process with Eritrea 
was kind of meeting severe obstacles, so to say, and also the domestic political reform agenda were losing pace. Uh, he started to re-arrest journalists and harass opposition members and so on and so forth. So by October 2019, the time when the Nobel Committee made their decision, we already knew that the two key reasons for granting him the award were not that positive, that they were backsliding, that the momentum had stopped both in the peace process and in the domestic reforms. So in my regard and other uh, observers as well, we say that the risk assessment undertaken by the committee were too weak, that the prize were premature, the processes on the ground should have been played out in a longer time span before the committee reached such an important decision. Can you speak generally about what Abe has been doing in the Tigray region in northern Ethiopia? In um, December 2019, just after Abe Ahmed returned from Oslo after receiving the Peace Prize, just a couple of days after that, he decided to dismantle the government party coalition, EPRDF, replacing it with a new unitary party called Prosperity Party. The consequence of that was that the key member of the former government alliance, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF, they withdrew from the government. They said that this goes against our policy and it goes against both constitution and uh, election laws of Ethiopia, the way the new government party was formed. And from that day and onwards, it was only a matter of time before an armed conflict should break out between the regional government of Tigray and the federal government of Ethiopia. A conflict which had several triggering factors until eventually the armed confrontation started in the beginning of November in 2020. And since then, Ethiopia have experienced a devastating, bloody civil war. The biggest war fought in the world in 2021 took place in Ethiopia in terms of numbers of troops involved in terms of battle death, in terms of IDPs and casualties of the war. And is there a sense that the Nobel Peace Prize may have in fact exacerbated the situation in Tigray and that the international goodwill that came from the prize in some ways gave Abe cover to plan the war there? Yes, there are different interpretations to that question. It seems that the Eritrean president Isaias Afwerki, when he entered into the diplomatic peace dialogue with Abiy Ahmed, his intentions were not to create peace, so to say, but to push his own agenda to pursue a conflict with Tigray and TPLF. But I don't think Abiy Ahmed at that time had the same idea but it gradually evolved into an alliance then between these two so-called peacemakers that this peace alliance turned into a war alliance to fight together against Tigray regional state and the TPLF regional government. 
both had the same agenda later on to marginalize and possibly even exterminate the TPLF as they themselves have claimed is the objective of the war. You were in touch with Ethiopian officials around that time of the Nobel Peace Prize being awarded to Abe. Were they, in a sense, upset and frustrated with the prize going to him, uh, given what was going on there? I think many observed that the prize emboldened Abiy Ahmed to pursue his political agenda internally in Ethiopia, meaning the establishment of a new unitary party and pushing his ideology of a more centralized Ethiopian state. And this is the core reason for the outbreak of conflict, so to say. The ones advocating a decentralized, devolved federal system versus the political bloc advocating a more centralized, strong Ethiopian government. So giving the award to Abiy Ahmed, he interpreted that as a recognition also of his new policy and political reforms in Ethiopia to centralize the Ethiopian state. And um, yes, there were very high-ranking members of his government party who told me that um, they placed the Nobel Committee responsible in the sense that when he came back from Oslo after receiving the prize, he dismantled the old party and established a new prosperity party as a direct kind of having received an international go-ahead and acknowledgement of his policies. Of course, that is, in my view, to blame the Nobel Committee for something which is really not their um, responsibility directly. But we see, obviously, that Abiy Ahmed have effectively used the prize in the early phase of his premiership to position himself politically and to shove it off, so to say, as he has the international backing to pursue his domestic policies. Now, the Norwegian Nobel Committee did hear this criticism and issued a rare rebuke of Abe in January 2022. What did they say? And in your opinion, do you think it went far enough? Well, since the outbreak of the war in November 2020, the Nobel Committee has received increasing criticism, both from internally in Ethiopia, obviously, from uh, the Tigray and other uh, belligerent parties, but also internationally. Initially, also for granting the prize to Abiy, but also for staying quiet, not commenting upon the outbreak of the war. And um, this pressure to comment on the events in Ethiopia has, has increased over the time span of the war. So eventually, in January 2022, the chair of the Nobel Committee, Mrs. Berit Reis Andersen, she was forced to come out with a public statement, which is quite unprecedented in the history of the Nobel Committee. This is only the second time the committee comments upon political affairs in the home country of the laureate, so to say. Who does make the decision of who gets the Nobel Peace Prize? I mean, there's a selection committee, but who's on it and how do they get to be on it, and what is the criticism of that process? Well, Alfred Nobel, in his uh, testament and will, he gave the responsibility to the Norwegian parliament 
to appoint the members to the committee. There are five members in the committee. Up till quite recently, more or less all these members were ex-parliamentarians or even active parliamentarians and politicians of Norway. For instance, the former chair of the committee who stepped down, he was the ex-prime minister and ex-foreign minister of Norway. So it has been a very close political connection between the political elite in Norway and the Nobel Committee. Although the Nobel Committee has insisted upon their political neutrality, so to say. But that's the facade to be rather blunt. Now, we have members of the committee which have not a background from the parliament. There is about 50-50, I would say. So some of the political parties then, instead of nominating their own ex-members of the parliament, they have nominated uh, experts in the field, so to say, both academics and practitioners, to have a seat in the committee. The committee receives sometimes several hundreds nominees every year, and they have an initial screening in their secretariat at the Nobel Institute, and they have uh, various shortlists where they then invite in uh, experts to evaluate and comment the nominated individuals or organizations. And uh, finally, the committee will have a, a very short list of maybe a handful of candidates. They are deliberating upon who should be granted then the, the prize for that year. All their discussions and deliberations and procedures in the Nobel Committee are confidential and they are locked down for 50 years before the archives are made public for research. So we don't really know the concrete discussions and decisions behind a laureate being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize until 50 years after. And given that many of the selection committee members are former politicians and ex-parliamentarians, is there a sense that some of these decisions might be geopolitically motivated, that they might be in the interest of the Norwegian government, and that might be swaying the decision process? I won't say it is in the interest of the Norwegian government per se, because some of the prizes have been very controversial in the eyes of the government and has actually made um, the Norwegian foreign policy much more complicated and difficult because it has been granted to people who have a controversial standing in their home country. But what we do know is that, you know, these are all Norwegians basically from the same background, the same uh, social elite with the same upbringing and the same perceptions of life and of politics and foreign policy. So we do see a very strong bias towards, if I may say, white European American male laureates. A very high overrepresentation of uh, American uh, laureates, for instance, considering the potential candidates all around the world. So that is influencing, and of course, what they feel as relevant from a Nordic, Norwegian, social democratic worldview influences who should receive the prize. 
in a column in The Guardian, you called for all of the members to collectively resign in protest uh, against the war in Ethiopia. Can you explain why you want that and what process should replace the one that we have now? Well, I, di- I made that call because the Nobel Committee and its traditions says that it is impossible to revoke a prize once it has been granted. And um, they have also said that it is impossible for the committee, after granting the prize, to actively criticize or engage in the context if the laureate misbehaves. So since they kept quiet on the war in Ethiopia, since they kept quiet that their most recent laureate, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, were responsible as the head of government for massive widespread and systematic war crimes and human rights abuses, I felt it necessary to encourage the committee then, since they could not revoke the prize, since they could not comment upon the situation in Ethiopia, to step down collectively. And by doing so, that would be interpreted worldwide as a direct protest against the actions of their Nobel Peace Prize laureate. Dr. Shatil Trunvol talking with our correspondent Avishai Artsy. Dr. Trunvall is a professor of peace and conflict studies at Oslo New University College in Norway. We'll have more with our conversation with him and soon Comfort Eero, president and CEO of International Crisis Group. All ahead on Peace Talks Radio right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. All of our episodes dating back to 2002 are online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, including the one that you're listening to right now, focusing in on the ups and downs of the Nobel Peace Prize in recent years. Our correspondent, Avishay Artsy, continues his conversation with Dr. Shetil Trunvol, who is the Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at Oslo New University College in Norway. He's commented recently about the need for reform in the way that the Nobel Peace Prizes are handed out, particularly since a recent laureate, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, has drawn criticism for his role in war in Ethiopia since receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. More now from Abishay Artsy's interview with Dr. Shetil Trunvall. 
Now, Abe was in his first year of office when he received the prize in 2019, and that recalled another controversial prize that was given to former U.S. President Barack Obama in 2009 during his first year as president. Can you recount why that choice was controversial at the time and continued to be afterwards? Yeah, because also Obama had only been in office for about one month before the nomination period was closed. And it was um, way too premature. And the prize to Obama reflects possibly the political positioning of the Nobel Committee and its members. The fact that uh, we saw uh, many in Norway looked upon Obama as um, countering, so to say, representing the US we want to see. The democratic, the social oriented young, aspiring, even black politician, countering some of the Republican sentiments, which doesn't really play well in the Norwegian political discourse. And uh, it was premature in the way that Obama, later on in his, during his presidency, undertook several controversial conflict uh, engagement. His, uh, ramping up of the drone warfare, for instance, which took place under Obama's presidency. So it was later on a lot to criticize uh, his international peace engagement, so to say. Wasn't that rosy and uh, positive as the Nobel Committee wanted it to be. Can you recount some of the other prize recipients that were controversial either at the time that they were given the prize or afterwards when it came out that maybe they weren't working for peace as much as the prize committee hoped they would? Well, the most controversial one, which had been discussed also more recently, was the prize to Aung San Suu Kyi from Myanmar. When the prize was given, it was not that much controversial. He had been in house arrest for, for years and years, representing the civil opposition to the military junta in Myanmar. But later on, when she was released and became part of the government and head of the government, her government undertook or continued what has been termed then as a genocidal campaign against the Rohingya people of Myanmar, the small minority. That was the first time when that took place, and again, when international criticism were directed towards the committee for keeping quiet on um, the atrocities undertaken by a former laureate, they were forced to come out and comment upon that in public. But there have been a number of controversial prizes. For instance, the prize to the European Union which was given not that many years ago, in Norway that created a lot of negative reactions because Norway is the only country in Europe which have voted twice no to join the European Union. But at the same time, the argument from the committee was that um, the establishment of the European Union have kept Europe at peace for several decades. And hence, European Union should also be viewed as a peace enforcing community, so to say, in the European context. There are controversial prizes to Middle Eastern politicians, Yasser Arafat, the head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, for instance, in his endeavor together with the Israeli prime ministers to create the 
peace in in Palestine, Israel. Laureates in the, during the Vietnam War, for instance, uh, were controversial. So there are, there are a number of prizes which have created reactions based on context of war and so-called peace processes. But there are different categories. What is interesting to see is that the committee over the last couple of decades has moved away from the more classic awarding of a peace process or engagement to broadening the definition of what the price is about or what peace is about. Climate and environmental politics has been awarded more general freedom of expression and human rights concerns have been awarded. So it is a watering out of the more stricter definition of a peace process or de-armament as uh, the testament of Nobel wanted the prize to be granted on. Right, yeah, the 2021 recipients were both journalists and, and some critics said, well, yeah, certainly freedom of the press is important, but didn't Alfred Nobel create this prize uh, to give to leaders who are working towards disarmament? And what does uh, journalism have to do with that, right? That it's it's kind of expanded well beyond the initial scope of the prize. Many of the picks are aspirational. These are people often handed the prize for what they hope to accomplish or what they've talked about being able to accomplish or having taken early steps towards peace. But isn't that a good thing. I mean, shouldn't we be trying to get people to work towards peace early on in the process and not only give it in retrospect? I mean, maybe that's one of the powerful things about the Nobel Peace Prize is that it can have a positive impact in the world. Certainly so. And the committee is very clear on that, that there are kind of two different reasonings for, for granting the prize. One is for kind of accomplishes well done in the past or for an organization who always do good work, like the 2020 prize to the World Food Programme of the UN, for instance. No one can dispute that they are in general doing good work and their objectives are well. And that's a safe kind of prize to give. But then the committee also says that they want to use the prize as an encouragement to continue a peace process or to encourage the parties in a conflict to come together to create peace, which is a much more forward-looking and much more politicized motivation for a prize. On those occasions, we also see that those prizes have been most discussed and have also faced the strongest criticism when the peace process have faltered and failed. So it is a dilemma, obviously, of the committee to constantly keep the price relevant in today's context. It's a very old price. It has been given out for 120 years. So it has to renew itself and it has to make itself relevant in uh, every year. So it is a dilemma on then how bold should the committee be <laughs> and how contemporarily, how current should the price be in order to uh, draw attention to a conflict context or to a particular topic they feel is uh, relevant to the price itself. We've talked about some of the controversial uh, recipients. 
Are there um, overwhelmingly positive recipients, people that have won the prize that you think there's no question that they should have received that prize? In my view, there are a lot of uh, laureates which are not controversial, but that, you know, that's because of my uh, political standing. A, a laureate, I would say, deserve the prize. Will uh, someone else say wouldn't, uh, you know, shouldn't get the prize? So I don't know. Uh, for instance, Jimmy Carter, your own uh, former president in the US, he received the prize in 2002. In many Norwegians' eyes, Jimmy Carter is a true, genuine character who works for the betterment of, of all people within many sectors of society. And the Jimmy the Carter Center does tremendous good work in various conflict contexts and peace centers. But in the US, for instance, the prize, the prize to Jimmy Carter will be more controversial than as seen from Norway or from Europe. So I think this is um, this that's a difficult thing to say that that and that laureate is non-contested or non-controversial because it all depends on your vantage point and on your own political context. But then there are recipients like Martin Luther King Jr. or the Dalai Lama or Malala Yousafzai that it would be hard to find reasons why they should not have received the prize. Certainly so. From my point of view too, those you mentioned there are all very good laureates. But uh, in uh, China, which is a considerable big demographic uh, size and political actor in the world today, they will have viewpoints that the Dalai Lama might not be the right laureate. So again, these need to be contextualized. But I'm not saying that everything is relative here. But I think the fact that we give this prize from a certain perspective as the five members of the Norwegian Nobel Committee have and their understanding of the world, which is an understanding which is extremely particularistic. It is extremely embedded in our understanding of politics, culture, history, and the worldview as seen from Oslo. Finally, would you say the Nobel Peace Prize has had a mostly positive, negative, or neutral impact in promoting peacemaking around the world? I would certainly say it has a, I hope at least, it has had a positive impact. It is a very, very important prize as it put focuses on an important topic in general and also on specific issues or areas of concern we all should be working towards to to elevate so to say be that a conflict context or uh, freedom of expression or uh, human rights concern in general it is a positive price and i think the committee should be praised for continuously making it relevant although i can disagree with some of its decisions in the overall work they do is diligent and thorough and they are trying to balance many concerns in that whole process the thing i wanted to see is again reflecting upon the very narrow representation in the committee, all being Norwegians, all coming from the same social strata, all having more or less the same educational background and the same worldview. I would have recommended a much more internationalized committee where you can bring in different perspectives from different cultural uh, 
uh, and political contexts into the committee, which might have balanced more some of the discussions and some of the laureates uh, being awarded. Dr. Shetil Trunvall is a professor of peace and conflict studies at Oslo New University College in Norway and head of the consulting firm Oslo Analytica. You can hear Avishay Artsy's entire interview with Dr. Trunvall at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. We're the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with correspondent Avishay Artsy today. You can find all of our episodes dating back to 2002 at our website too, peacetalksradio.com. Peace is a noble thing to pursue, but achieving and maintaining peace is easier said than done. Peace prizes may reflect the hope for peace more than the reality of it. Dr. Comfort Iro is president and CEO of International Crisis Group and its former Africa program director. She spent her career working on conflict prevention, management, and resolution, which we'll hear more about just ahead. But first, Ms. Iro had this to add to our discussion about peace prizes, including the Nobel Peace Prize. There's a lot of controversy um, around peace prizes, especially if they don't deliver peace. I think a number of people have become despondent, for example, um, with things like the Nobel Peace Prize, and ones that are tied to um, specific political leaders. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with the idea. I would argue that peace prizes, for me, are, are far more about the giver than the recipient, including the Nobel Peace Prize, and and that's problematic for, for numerous reasons. I wouldn't necessarily focus on the Nobel Peace Prize. It's one amongst many. It's the one right at the top of the podium. But these awards, these prizes, venerate people for what they've done or what they stand for or what it is that um, the givers hope that these personalities will do. But that ends up giving recipients a platform that they may not be well equipped to use in the right way, especially if those prizes are given to politicians. Politicians, for example, are still politicians with all the compromise and the inconsistency that that entails. Icons may become politicians. People may have laudable principles on some issues, but not on others or those principles may turn out to have been instrumental rather than deeply held. And some people who have contributed greatly to resolving a specific conflict may have little to contribute on others. We've seen well-documented examples of militaristic actions by such prize recipients as Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and Burmese politician Aung San Suu Kyi. And I think it shows us also that peace may be achieved in the short term, but it's more difficult to maintain peace in the long term. Do you think the Nobel Peace Prize infected more harm than good in the situation in Ethiopia? The slow train towards war would have happened regardless of the peace prize. One may want to argue that there may have been international naivety on those who conferred the peace price on him, assuming that it would change Prime Minister Abiy's character and rule. And at the time, we already saw indications that that would not be the case with Prime Minister Abiy. I'm looking at the Nobel Peace Prize 
for 2021, and its recipients were both journalists, Maria Ressa and Dmitry Murata from the Philippines and Russia, respectively. Can you talk about how you view freedom of the press as a precondition for democracy and lasting peace? Of the key indicators that one looks for to see that a country is moving towards um, instability, repression, or that it's moving towards authoritarian trend, it is that issue about the freedom of the press, the freedom of expression, and the closing of the political space. This, for me, already raises the alarm bells as well, when a country um, seeks to control the narrative as well. I mean, it, it, it already sends a dangerous signal. Also, how far can you control um, the narrative? There are still other ways in which societies are able to, to get their message out. And the fact that the Nobel Peace Prize was given to two journalists who fought in the name of freedom of expression, who fought in defense of um, journalistic freedom, for me already sends out an important message to all leaders that seek to repress, that seek to curtail, and oftentimes arrest um, people for freedom of, of expression. Um, this, for me, sends out an important signal that you can attempt to squash, you can attempt to silence, but we will still be able to get the, the truth out, still be able to get the facts out, and still be able to do our work in different ways. Is there someone that you wish would receive the Nobel Peace Prize? Oh, if you can award civilians, women, children, these are people who are caught in the crossfire of geopolitical artillery. Um, if you can award them, <laughs> then for me that that would speak volumes. These are the people who are caught in the in the dangers of very high, intense violence. You know, how do you support them? You know, in the pursuit of peace, many many innocent people um, die as a result, and. Uh, the Peace Prize um, needs to highlight the human cost and the sacrifice for countless people. It's global. Um, it's many civilians finding ways in which to supply food and medicine, finding ways in which to harbour people fleeing from the front lines. Those are the people that we need to to recognise them. And I don't know. I don't know that the Peace Prize. <laughs> is enough to do that. I think finding a way in which to, to end wars is going to be the key to helping us doing that. We're hearing from Dr. Comfort Iro, President and CEO of International Crisis Group. And Abishai Artsy's conversation with her will continue right after this short break.
It's Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with correspondent Avishai Artsy, who now continues his conversation with Dr. Comfort Iro, president and CEO of International Crisis Group. The International Crisis Group, which you now lead, has a mission of preventing wars and ending deadly conflict by offering analysis, recommendations, and advocacy. And the mission statement includes that the crisis group sounds the alarm to prevent deadly conflict. But does the world listen when that alarm is sounded? You know, the ICG warned that the Tigray war was coming, but diplomats and the media doubted it. So even when you can see the likelihood of war coming, how do you convince people of something that they're not willing to see? So one of the big challenges, you know, for crisis group, and that we've noticed and we continue to raise, is that gap between early warning and then early action as well. We've always said that we've got to find a way in which to seize the moment that wars can be prevented, they can be mitigated early. Now, if there's a clearly crafted political and sort of diplomatic engagement as well. And oftentimes that has become more difficult because we are living in an increasingly (laughs) polarised international community where regional geopolitical rivalries have weakened diplomacy. We're seeing it today, for example, in relation to Ukraine. We saw it in the past over in relation to Syria, and we're seeing it ongoing today in relation to the South China Sea. So we do need to find, and we still need to find a way in which to carefully weave a framework of diplomacy and create, continue to create that political space for crisis management, you know, to avert or mitigate looming conflicts as well. But that the challenge really is between the early warning and the significant early warning and then getting the appropriate early action to avoid the Ukraines, to avoid the Syrians, to avoid what we're seeing right now playing out in the international arena. It's true that it's a struggle to focus on conflict prevention. It's true that you know we've, there's a lot of focus instead on the symptoms as opposed to, to the cause. But it's also true that there are good examples when conflict prevention or preventative diplomacy is given a chance that you can get the, the, the right results as well. You just spoke of the importance of preventative diplomacy. Anne Applebaum recently wrote in The Atlantic that, quote, the new breed of autocrats, whether in Russia, China, Venezuela, or Iran, aren't interested in treaties and documents. They only respect hard power. So in such cases, are the old rules of diplomacy still useful, or do you need to focus on economic tools like freezing bank accounts or cutting off gas exports, things like that? Well, I mean, right now we're talking in the context where we've seen the most maximalist of sanctions being imposed, for example, on Russia, on Putin specifically in relation to to Ukraine. So this is war by other means, in a sense, as well. This is a rare moment in international relations in terms of interstate conflict as well. You know, I agree with Anne Applebaum's own assertions. In a sense, this isn't the age of autocracy, but it's not new, right? We've dealt with previous authoritarian um, leaders. What is often interesting is that those authoritarian leaders also want to engage in these international platforms. So while they may criticise multilateralism 
while they may criticize all these processes, they also continue to engage in these processes and use them to assert their own sort of position, to justify their own position or to put their case forward. We saw it, for example, with the Russian permanent um, representative in the UN and the Security Council, how they use that chamber to articulate their, their position, but also to find allies um, in their company as well. So I think one of the significant developments also that has emerged out of Ukraine is just the rapid um, unity that we're seeing. Large parts of the world have become unified because of the, the horror of the sort of the brazenness in which Moscow has rolled its tanks to the borders and, and into parts of Ukraine. That itself has generated a level of defiance um, in reaction to that as well. And who knows what's going to happen next, but I, I don't think we should ignore this important moment that we've also managed to, to achieve some degree of unity or, or consensus about what this means. As we speak, the world's attention is focused on Ukraine, but we all know that some wars get more attention than others. You know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has captured the West's attention in a way that other recent wars like those in Yemen or Ethiopia simply haven't. So why is that, in your view, and is there a way to change that? No, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, and exactly, and this is one of the, the reasons I think you also had some countries who abstained instead or struck a more neutral tone instead in relation to, to Ukraine because there was that concern of double standards. There was that concern also that because this was, this was a European um, conflict, that it somehow mattered more. I mean, I think we at Crisis Group have been very clear that the reason why Crisis Group exists is to continue to throw the spotlight on those forgotten conflicts, those unknown conflicts, those countries that may appear to lack the same strategic importance as the Ukraine. So, for example, you're right to mention Yemen. Yemen's war faded from the headlines, for example, in 2021, but it remains devastating. And, you know, it could get worse this year. The same with Ethiopia. But the reality also is that there's a limit to what diplomats can absorb. There are so many files, for example, on the on the desk of the United Nations Security Council. And what we've seen is that oftentimes there's a limited capacity to what a lot of the, the world leaders can absorb. And our job is to continue to throw a spotlight, to warn and to make sure that we don't lose sight of, of these crises. If I could ask a maybe a more personal question about your interest in this topic, Dr. Iro, you were born in London and raised in post-Civil War Nigeria, and you've been working in the field of conflict resolution your whole career. Uh, you were appointed Crisis Group's president and CEO in December 2021. So you believe that peace is possible, that conflicts can be resolved. Are you still as certain of that as you were when you began your career? And what, what keeps you working towards that goal? Oh, I absolutely believe it. That, that's why I came to Crisis Group, because I do see opportunities for peace. I mean, our mission, our byline, preventing more shaping peace, I, I fundamentally believe in that. It's always about finding the right moment in which to, you know, not only just sound the alarm, but to knit together very carefully policy messages that aims to sort of nudge international opinion. It takes time. 
it requires you to be patient. It requires you to be very strategic. And it requires you to talk to all sorts of people, some people that you do not want to talk to. It requires you to, to mobilize various actors, political, media, other activists, to not only warn early, but to take action. And even once crisis has broken up as well, is continuing to look for ways in which to keep the door to diplomacy open. And I, I fundamentally believe in that. If we didn't, crisis group wouldn't exist. And despite the, the horrors of today, and despite what we see in the headlines, for example, in relation to Ukraine, we can point to other places. I mean, look at Colombia and the peace deal that we struck there in 2016 with the, with the FARC. Look at Liberia, where I had my very first peacekeeping mission in Liberia. Look at Sierra Leone. These were countries that at the time were knee-deep in civil war and, and crisis. So there are opportunities and we exist to find those opportunities. And I think it's an important um, mission that we've got at Crisis Group. You know, I recently read an editorial by the historian Yuval Noah Hariri in The Economist, where he asked kind of a fundamental question, is change possible? He said, can humans change the way they behave or does history repeat itself endlessly with humans forever condemned to reenact past tragedies without changing anything except the decor? <laughs> so this asks kind of a fundamental question, like, is peace actually possible or is war just going to be an innate fact of human life? What do you make of that question? War is going to be there, but so is, so is peace. I wouldn't look at it in a very na narrow lens. You know, I've just cited, you know, three or four conflicts where we found resolution. There is tension in our societies. I mean, it's when humans interact. You know, there is that sense already of, of tensions in, in our social contract as well. But at the same time, we also see the peaceful coexistence. I mean, um, we see more and more crisis, but we also see generations who want change. You know, a very youthful generation getting on the streets protesting for change, and some of them doing it peacefully as well. So I wouldn't say there was an inevitability of war, and I wouldn't say that peace is often hard to attain. But of course, the path to peace is often long, hard and dangerous, um, but it does require people who have a real understanding of the psychology of the conflict actors, who understand the dilemmas, and who are able to think of creative and innovative ways in which to balance the different compromises and the different demands of various actors as well. I'd like to ask you a question about climate change, because as we look around the world and we see these wars raging across the globe, there's this looming threat of a climate crisis that is threatening an extinction level event. Can you fight against war and climate change at the same time? Do you need peace in order to unite global powers against a threat this large? Yeah, for me, of all the crises that we that we face, of all the terrible human toll, the displacement, the, the bleakness of the world, I think the most significant one for me is the climate change. I, I see that as the, the mega trend um, alongside the pandemic as well. I mean, it's still hard to say what the direct link is between, for example, climate change and, and conflict. But we do see the immediate impact. So the most destabilizing impact, for example, will be the impact of population movement 
um, over the next five to 10 years. And the reason why Crisis Group now has inserted climate change into its own conflicts to watch is because we see the relationship between water scarcity, resource competition, and political instability, how climate change is impacting that, and they are also impacting climate change um, as well. So we have taken on this work because it's an existential crisis. In addition to the traditional risks that ICG looks at, there are also these emerging risks like cyber or remote warfare, food insecurity, or public health as they relate to conflict dynamics. What are the risks that we're not thinking enough about? You've talked about climate change. The other um, issue that I think that we need to look at is digital technology. You know, you've seen the role of Facebook, of Twitter, you know, of WhatsApp. These are already sort of defining and redefining the conflict landscape. Um, we've seen the net effect of how new technologies or new technological advancement in warfare is enhancing or changing or impacting battlefield dynamics. So we saw how the use of drones when they were inserted into Nagorno-Karabakh, for example, or Ethiopia, um, or even in Libya, how that altered battlefield dynamics. So, And we've seen how these various new innovations can enable or foment unrest they can be used increasingly, and we, we do see them used by leaders to suppress dissent, to wage war. And we've also seen how they're creating new security challenges. And they also um, further polarise, um, already polarised societies as well, especially in terms of social media. I mean, already we had the traditional use of radio, for example. We saw how that was misused in the context of the Rwandan genocide, for example, or even in the post-election violence in Kenya, how hate speech and how the radio became the oracle for spouting out some very polarizing language. So it's not that it's new, but in terms of the future of conflict, we really have to be paying more and more attention increasingly to how these new weapons contribute to waging war and suppressing dissent and, and fueling more instability. That was Dr. Comfort Iro, President and CEO of International Crisis Group. You can hear Abishai Artsy's complete conversation with Dr. Iro, as well as finding out more information about her and all of our guests today at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. You can also see photos of our guests, read and share partial transcripts there, sign up for our podcast, order CDs, find links to other resources on our topic, and make a donation while there, too, to keep this program going into the future, all at peacetalksradio.com. Connect with us there. Support comes from listeners like you, of course, but also from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Thanks always to our anchor station, KUNM, at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Avishai Artsy, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.